0: Welcome to TBA Now. I'm Keith Stern, the rabbi of Temple Beth Avodah. I am blessed to know the many extraordinary people who are connected to our congregational community. This podcast is an opportunity to get to know who they are and what they do. Our cantorial soloist, Susan Glickman, is our very special guest this week. Susan talks about so many of her experiences growing up at Beth Avodah and then returning as an adult to work here as our cantorial soloist. Susan reflects on the history of TBA and how we've changed and how we've stayed the same. It's a fascinating podcast. Come here, Susan share her impressions of our past, present, and future. We've had a lot of guests on this podcast over the past couple of years, members of the congregation who have been uh, known by some, but not by all. And here we have today, Susan Glickman, who, if you're a member of Beth Avoda, you know who she is. And I am so, so happy to have this chance to talk with you, Susan, to uh, include you in this great assortment of human beings that make up our community. Um, Welcome to TBA Now.
1: Thank you. I am so honored to be one of your esteemed guests. Well, you are
0: certainly esteemed and we're glad to have you. I I have so many questions and and let's face it, we've known each other a long, long time and we could go down any uh, number of Tangents and be there for hours. So, instead of doing that, I'm going to ask you to help us understand how it is that you and your family found the community of Temple Beth Avoda.
1: I actually needed to go back to my family to find out what year it was that we joined, and I, I believe we've come down to what, maybe 1972 or 73, somewhere between both of my brothers' bar mitzvahs, when we came to Beth Avodah, our family was members at Temple Emeth and decided that the type of uh, Judaism they were practicing there didn't really line up with what we were doing in our household. And there was this new cool temple on on Puddingstone Lane, and we came to Beth Avodah really early on. It's probably about 10 years into the founding of the temple.
0: You came in at what age?
1: I think I was in second or third grade, I have a very strong memory. I don't know why, but I have a memory of one of the first days of Hebrew school over in that building across the street and meeting some of my best friends for life. Like right there, I remember sharing, I don't know why, but sharing a poncho. Remember those ponchos that our grandparents used to make?
0: (laughs) You mentioned the, the building across the way that many people have no idea. So what did it look like in those days?
1: It kind of looked like somebody's summer house. Like it was just a very rudimentary building, like a bunch of classrooms upstairs and downstairs. I wasn't the exemplary Hebrew school student back in the days. And when you talk about kids who didn't really like Hebrew school so much, I probably was one of those.
0: <laughs> uh-huh. so you did a little bit of kicking and screaming on your way?
1: Not so much kicking and screaming, but did a lot of uh, chatting in class and, you know, spending <laughs> a lot of time talking to the principal there.
0: (laughs) And um, your parents were very involved in the life of the congregation. Tell us about that.
1: I wish I could ask them who actually brought them in, because I don't remember that detail. However, I knew they were very connected to the Newton South community on this side of the city through Little League and through other Uh, town involvements. And so somehow we ended up at Temple Beth Avodah. They must have known somebody in the area. My mom loved to sing. And as you know, she immediately became a member of our temple choir. And that was a really big part of my family's involvement at the temple. My dad always liked, as you know, was kind of a big guy around town and he liked being in charge. And he very very quickly got involved in temple board, probably the brotherhood. I remember that early on and soon he got involved on our temple executive committee that, you know, for years that kind of built up to his being president. And I think I actually looked it up. I think he was the president in 1989. Also, and I know Amy Tonkonigy is so involved at Temple Beth Avodah, her mom, Sybil, was a big part of my parents' life and they both loved being part of our temple place. We didn't We didn't call it the arts troupe in those days, but there was a big group of people that would come out for all of the plays that Sybil ran.
0: So you were in the front row watching the plays, and, and I, I guess uh, you must have been early on somehow attracted to the choir. How, were you? Did, was that something you took to
1: immediately? So I, my family had a special place in the synagogue. And for people who are old members of Beth Avoda, the Millenders and others, we had a place on the on the right side next to where the choir was. And we were probably about seven rows back, because we were on the same row where my mother was sitting in the choir. And the Millenders always sat a few rows in front of us. So I I was not so much attracted to the choir itself, but the feeling that the choir brought to the congregation, that there was a sense of community. When they sang, everybody would start to sing. I would look ahead at the people in front of me, and everybody was singing. So that's what they did. And I think that's the music piece for me, was I felt like this warm sense of belonging and community through temple music.
0: What's one of the melodies that you remember from sitting there listening? What was one of the choir's standard pieces? I know I'm putting you on the spot.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think one of them may have been, you know, some of the old Janowski pieces or, you know, some of the old, really old pieces that we call Me Sinai pieces that came that came in through every Jewish uh, home and I do remember them singing the, I think it is, uh, Lewandowski, and it was Matovu, Tovu, that one. That's one. I think they did, uh, Lechado di that one. <laughs> Some of those pieces those are the pieces I remember, particularly the high holiday pieces. Those are the pieces that really stick with me. The old, you know, Micha which we still sing with like the emphasis on the wrong syllable, <laughs> because God forbid we would change the way it goes, you know, ba which is incorrect in terms of the Hebrew, but we, I've continued to sing it that way.
0: A good homage,
1: a good homage to the olden days. And of course, you know, I think about the choir, I think about when Freddie Shapiro would sing Kol Nidre and there were, you know, and, and for people at Beth Avodah, they may not know that I still sing the same arrangement from the 70s and 80s. I took that arrangement of Kol Nidre.
0: One of the sweet things about Freddie Shapiro, A Love of Sholem, uh, singing Kol Nidre was uh, when I came in 1997, he sang it a few more years, and he would always bring up to the Bima his grandson, Jordan, and he would bring up his copy of Colnidre that uh, looked like it had been from the Cairo Geniza in the 15th century. It was, It was laminated because it was falling apart, and it was yellowed. What I loved about the document was it reflected a kind of love and dedication that I think reflects the foundational ideas of that first group of people that uh, that made Beth Avoda the place that it was and it still is. You notice, as I mentioned the old timers, I say Beth Avoda. So I go uh, to the uh, Ashkenazic pronunciation uh, from the old days. Were any of the voices in the choir trained?
1: I think that's a very political question. <laughs> well, I should been be careful. <laughs> I don't know. I think some people may have had some training. I'll leave it at that. There were, there were definitely voices that I remember. Certain people who sang certain solos. That I remember, and you know, occasionally if the person was out, my mother might sing a solo or um, Barbara Wise might have sung a line here and there. She was an alto, so she was in the middle. And Ruthie, who, you know, I would walk in occasionally with my dad and everybody would ask me, hi, Susie, how are you? It was like I had a whole bunch of aunties that I loved. And Ruthie would ask my mother essentially to learn every part because the men who sang in the choir, none of them could read music at all. So she would have to learn the tenor and the bass lines and then help the guys sing. The women that were the sopranos, they were pretty good. They were probably the more trained of all the singers. But my mom kind of became this, you know, could sing everything no matter whatever they needed her to sing that day. She would sing that part.
0: She was the utility hitter.
1: She was. I mean, that is not something that I got from her. Her skills were much more mathematical than my skills. My skills kind of come from, what I never called it this, but really my skills come from the jazz genre, where I understand music and music theory, and I can do harmonies, and I hear it in my head more than on paper.
0: At what point in your life did Music beckoned to you. I mean, did you start? Did you did you think you were going to do something professionally with music?
1: <laughs> so my first grade report card said, from Mrs. Jones, she has the loveliest voice in the class. <laughs>
0: <laughs> How about a nice thing to get on your report
1: card? From first grade. Yeah. Well, I come by it naturally. My grandparents really are the beginning of our musical foundation. My grandmother was a fantastic piano player, completely played by ear, like big-handed jazz, beautiful chords. She used to hear chords on the radio and say they were beautiful. And so music was always a part of my life. So I think it was probably around the time we joined Temple that I also started Jewish camp. And it was really a camp where I first saw somebody playing the guitar and singing Jewish music. That was probably one of the greatest turning points or early indicators of me being involved in Jewish music in my life. I think that was 1972, actually. When did
0: you start playing guitar?
1: I probably was in second or third grade or fourth, and I picked up the guitar in fourth grade hmm. right after and that summer.
0: Did it belong to your brother, John, or, or David, or did, like how did you...
1: I started on piano lessons like we all did in our family and actually gave me some great music foundation. And re- parents, I recommend you always go to a jazz piano teacher so you can understand music. And I, from there, picked up the guitar already understanding a lot about music. And I started playing chords. And I think maybe a year or two later, I was already one of the featured guitarists at uh, Temple Beth Abo Does Junior Choir. How much of Temple was part of your life growing up? It was a huge part of our life as as a, a child, like before high school, when we would go out at, on a Friday night or something. But I would often, my brothers went out with their friends, but I used to like to go to temple and sit with my dad. And I think one of my memories of him, you know, he passed a few years ago now, but I have a very strong memory of him, of sitting with him at Temple Beth Abodah and twirling my fingers in his talit And it's such a, I'm a very sensory person. It's a very visceral memory that I think I carry with me in a really beautiful way.
0: You get to camp, you see that there's this Jewish music that you've been raised on pretty much listening to the choir and a particular format for music. And suddenly uh, you are um, at camp, I would assume electrified by the notion that you could do Jewish music with a guitar. So you get back from summer camp with that experience. How does that translate to... Music at the temple, at what point does the guitar start to make its way into Beth Avodah?
1: Well, you remember in 1972 and 1971, Debbie Friedman recorded her first album, Sing Unto God. And that was actually one of the first songs I ever learned at camp, at Camp Pembroke. We had, I, don't, I don't even remember the name of the song leader, but clearly my director was brilliant. And I was so excited by that m- music, you know, almost like riveted. It was a whole new way. You think about it, you know, we were listening to music like back in those days, probably like David Cassidy and the, <laughs> the Partridge family. But they were, you know, guitar, the monkeys, they were guitar playing musicians that we listened to when we were young kids. And later, of course, you know, James Taylor, and that was really my my music. And so suddenly, the music that I was hearing at camp sounded like the music that I listened to in secular music. And it was so exciting for me. So, you know, I'm, I was learning things like uh, James Taylor's You've Got a Friend at the same time while I was learning Debbie Friedman's songs and Jeff Klepper's songs. So, you know, it, it all just became like one and the same for me. How eager was
0: the choir to hear that music?
1: I think that they were really open to it. As a matter of fact, because I know that one of the favorite pieces of the choir became, I know this is a fact that Ruthie told me that the first piece she brought to the temple was Lechi Lach.
0: Okay, before you continue, Susan, give us uh, a little portrait. You've mentioned Ruthie a couple times. Tell everybody who Ruthie was.
1: Ruthie Boynick started the Temple Beth Avodah Choir before I came. And she was this not bigger than life person. I wouldn't say that she was bigger than life, but she was a profound influence on the synagogue. Remember, Rabbi Miller couldn't sing and she, he relied on Ruthie to bring together a group of people to sing. So I just remember her as this woman. She had this famous way of waving her hands. Like she had this kind of a funny way of conducting that seemed to work for her. (laughs) And, you know, all throughout the years, from the time I was a girl until I came to Beth Avodah my first year, and she sat in a chair and sang in my choir. She was a part of my life. I even have a really profound memory of her in her last days of her life. And I went to visit her at the hospital in one of the last days of her life on Shabbat And I sang Shabbat music with her, and she was kind of in her own world, and her hands were conducting. And I was absolutely certain that she was already conducting a choir in heaven, like she was moving her way. And I'll keep that image in my brain forever and ever.
0: That's such a beautiful image. And I know that... uh, She did love that choir and and loved the music. And uh, um, I think in many ways she laid a foundation that you later, when you came on as our soloist, uh, that the foundation was there um, that had been built in your own childhood. And what an kind of interesting way that was for you to come back doing music with the background that you had. Susan you you so you were a music major you leave college and then what happens
1: I had this idea I was going to go into music therapy so I had a double major of psychology and music and I landed in a job actually in the Newton Public Schools teaching in a class for uh, students with developmental disabilities and as Many things happened in my life. My life just kind of leaded me in a different direction, I think, as a result of what I was doing in my social life, which was getting connected to a whole bunch of post-college students that were interested in being involved in Jewish life. And that led me to knowing a whole bunch of wonderful people, including somebody a lot of people know in this area is Rabbi Elaine Zecker, who at that time was just newly minted rabbi working, I think, at a JCC. And we were friends through our Havurah experience of young Jewish adults. I played guitar for this group. So I ended up somehow through the way things happen in life, going from thing to thing, and... I ended up teaching kindergarten, and that also was something that, I don't want to say fell on my lap, but it just turned out that that was the new direction of my, my life and my path, and I continued to do Jewish music on the side, doing taught Shabbats and things like that, because I obviously love children, and I love Jewish music, so I put those two things together, and there you go. I had this, my first inn in the synagogue was actually at Beth Avoda working in your Shabbat in the other other building and then i found my way to do touchabot at other places like at temple israel and that's really what led me into this path of jewish music which was really a sideline for me something i wasn't planning to do i started doing Shabbat at temple israel then rashi school opened They asked me to be their music teacher. I did that at the same time while I was teaching in Newton Public Schools. So I just ended up on this path, kind of going through my education part of my life as a music teacher and found myself really at Temple Israel. That was really where the big changes happened. So I think think the big piece was what happened was I had been at Temple Israel for a while And I got invited to do a kalah, to play music for an adult kalah. People saw me and then said, will you come and do Shabbat one time? Will you come do this? Will you come do that? And it's kind of what happened here at Beth (laughs) Avoda. At Beth Avoda to Beth Avoda when you came in. As Uh you notice, I've also changed my my verbiage. I started doing more music. And I, I honestly came by it without a lot of knowledge. And I had to rely on... People to teach me, kind of the old-fashioned way that people learned, a skill. And for me, it was probably through uh, Cantor Roy Einhorn, who took me aside, and I can from remember Temple Israel. From Temple Israel, and took me aside and said, "I'd love you to be somebody here, and I'll teach you everything that you need to learn. I'll teach you music for high holidays. I'll you know, can you do a wedding? Sure, I don't know the liturgy. I'll teach it to you." So over the time and through the old-fashioned method of learning from, from tutors, I learned a lot of liturgy and nusach and some of the skills I would need to, to learn to take on a cantorial role.
0: What's your uh, recollection of our origin story?
1: Hmm.
0: How our partnership begins?
1: Well, again, I'm going to go back to this kind of mystical meant to be a shared story, because I think it's incredibly profound how I did land here. And it was actually through the death of my mother, Anita Bamel, that I got connected to you. I didn't really know you. I hadn't been coming to High Holidays because I was doing work elsewhere. And when my mother was very sick with cancer, she met many times with Rabbi Miller. She wasn't really a person that I would call particularly spiritual or Myers Briggs feeling the way that you d- might describe me. She was much more technical, but I think in her late years, in the late at the very end of her illness, she kind of found a new sense of spirituality, and Rabbi Miller worked about you know talked to her a lot about that. So unbeknownst to me. She had created what exactly she wanted for her funeral. And on that list that Rabbi Miller shared with us, like the day or two before she died, there was a request in a typical way that my mother, only my mother could ask. It said, I would really love it if Susan would sing Debbie Friedman's Psalm 23 at my funeral if she is able and the If She Is Able was the part that, to me, was so, so special.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: I had actually given, that was the the year that Renewal of Spirit album came out, a couple of years before she died. And my parents listened to it on repeat over and over and over and found great, great solace and great healing. Really a refuah shlema. It's, that's the album from which her Misha Berach comes.
0: Right. I remember very clearly how moved I was by your ability at your mother's funeral uh, in this space that was hers, really, in so many ways, that um, you were able to sing. She was wise to include that last phrase if you were if you were able, but you stepped up. And you've always managed, in almost every situation that we've worked in, the ones that are so fraught with so much anguish, with very, very, very few exceptions. have You've certainly held on far better than me. Uh, that's for sure. Which isn't such a great, you know, doesn't take a lot. But um, w- so what part of you do you go to that in the midst, because it seems like music is such a, not seems, music is so emotive, it connects so deeply. And it's one thing to be able to speak, to actually be able to sing. How? Where do you go to make that happen? Where do you go in your head?
1: You know, that is such a good question. You know, when I think about going back to the funeral to that first time, and it's, I think it's, it's so important that that day, I I didn't even know what I was doing because I had never played the song. I mean, literally, it was the first time I had ever played that. I learned it the day before. And I kind of just went to a place where my mom had asked me and I was on an adrenaline rush. And I was there and kind of like I always say to people when they're mourning that it's a bit of an out-of-body experience, particularly when it's really emotional, that you go and your adrenaline carries you. I think as a professional... I think I've I've been good at carrying a lot of people's, the weight of grief and other things in me while at the same time I can move forward. Yeah, I'm not always successful. I mean, you can, you guys can ask Ann Kalis who sits next to me during that Yisker service. And so often, and after those first few notes of Schindler's list, she can feel me shaking.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But I think, one of the, the things uh, about your style is that when you're called upon to to lead us, you do it not only with all your heart, which people might not even know you, but listen to this, can already pick up just by listening to you. The fact is you also bring a deep professional ethic to the work. You've often said that you don't believe in what you do is being defined as performing, that it's not about performance. How do you characterize it?
1: I have never been one for performance. Maybe if I were, there would be more concerts where I'm performing. And, and it's, I've never, I've always considered myself a good enough singer, a very, probably a very good guitar player. I can carry myself. But it's always been about leading prayer, and that has always been at the front, the forefront for me. And you know, going back to one of the first times I ever performed in front of a crowd, first time I ever sang Kol Nidre was at a service at Temple Israel, and my pianist accidentally had changed the key on his electric piano for oh, yeah. the song that came before. And when I started singing Kol Nidre. It took me to about like the fifth or sixth measure that I realized that I was about five notes too high and I would never reach that note that was coming up. And I had a big decision, like, was I going to stop or was I going to just keep going? And the, the lesson of it for me, though, was I did keep going and it sounded pretty awful or I switched to the low register or something, was that the rabbi I worked with, she said to me at the time, it's not about the performance, it's about what you bring in prayer. And that's all that matters. And I've always used that to guide me. So you live by that. I really do. I really believe, and I've I've shared that with our kids as well. If you think about your bar mitzvah celebration or your service coming up as a performance, it takes away a lot of the authenticity of what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. We're doing it together. You and I are doing it together. We're all doing it. Sometimes our voices work really well, sometimes they don't, but you just have to bring yourself, your whole heart.
0: Well, standing with you on the beam all these years, I would uh, have to acknowledge that you do that really, really well. And it makes the experience of prayer, which itself can be very difficult, Practically speaking, defining what prayer is and how it works and the whole meaning of a liturgy, uh, which we've talked a lot about. But what's been always so clear is that when we stand together and do what we do, that there is a kind of energy all about what we put forth for others to jump into.
1: You know, I think, Rabbi, if you go, I think we need to go back a little bit because when I came and I met you— you were trying to make changes at Beth Avoda, and remember the choir provided a wonderful opportunity for people to come together and sing, but it it did the music that was sung was more performative itself when you came you were you were coming in a time when the the whole reform movement was moving toward a more participatory style of of singing, and you know some people would have called it campy style. Or you know whatever you, whatever you want to call it the guitar playing versus the first the organ and then the keyboard, but it really was about people joining in and kind of being on this road together. So I know when before I came in, you know, you used to talk about you would talk and then the, the soloist would sing and then you would talk and then would sing. So I came along. And together, we forged a whole new way of prayer that included mostly singing and really most of it together in harmonies and, you know, moving our congregation in a whole new way spiritually to kind of be like swept up into it.
0: I I think the, the notion of moving away from the performance and more into the sense of engagement was so important, and I know that it was a very controversial time at the temple, and uh, for a variety of political reasons, the choir basically, before I arrived, the, then the the then board of directors uh, decided essentially to uh, retire the choir. When you think about your own development as a cantorial soloist here at the congregation. Do you have any moments you would call pivotal in your development where you realized, yeah, this is what I want to do. This is where I want to stay.
1: It's been a lot of years since I've been here and I've had so many moments that have been transformative for me as a person. Um, I think I came in as the Jewish singer, but I'm really leaving as a, person who's really about the pastoral elements of this role, in addition to music, that music is a part of it, but it's such a bigger, such a bigger job and a bigger part of my life. So in terms of like profound, I think I have so many, I have so many memories of of things that really changed me. Probably one of the first ones was the beginning of the, the Anita Bamel Music Fund and gathering people together. And it it really became more about the gathering of people together than who we brought in. But it, w- part of it was so fun for me was being able to kind of back in the days it was before we had Apple music where you get everybody's everybody came up. But I think there was something that was like, if you like this person, then you can try this one. And I would click on people I'd never heard of. And then yeah. I would go find one of their albums and buy it and listen to the songs. And, and I started bringing in new music and probably you know early on with the Craig Tobman remember Craig Tobman was traveling all over the country doing his Friday night live and we brought him to Avota. and that was one of the first profound moments of of joy and music and bringing i think we had 600 people in the sanctuary singing their heads off singing you know the pieces that today that you won't let me change like Barahu, his Barahu, and his Hachki Venu. I know um, a few of our members are always upset if I do any other versions of either right. of these two melodies. But that would be one of the profound moments for me, looking out and seeing a whole congregation singing their heads off. And so you and I do this thing where we would do the Hu prayer and we're facing the windows, right? And I do the call and response, and then you sing And I know you're going to know exactly where I'm going with this. And there was a, like a few times where we get to that part where my guitar goes Dun tika Dun tika and I turn around and we start singing La 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 la, and we could stop singing because everybody was singing, and we would look at each other and like like almost tears welling in our eyes. Like look what we did. And that was that's the profound moment that this idea that we've created this congregation of singers and of people who want to be together in prayer, in community, whatever it is, whether it's because you are connected Jewishly or just love singing with people.
0: We've had I I didn't count, Susan, the number of Anita Behmel concerts we've had, but we've had several over the past years. And maybe it's not fair. We're going to ask you anyway. What has been your favorite Anita Behmel Shabbat concert?
1: Wow. So we started these in 2000, I think the year 2000 maybe, or 2001. We never, we tried to make a list. And 2019 would have been our last one that we got canceled. So Mm -hmm. yeah, there were a lot of them.
0: And your favorite?
1: My favorite of them all was not necessarily because of the artist, but because of what Temple Beth Abu Dhab brought was the Rick Recht program, where we had over a hundred singers and they were all kids. It was before the days of the community choir. Were, it was a period, in a way it was kind of the golden age for me of, of when I was, since I've been at the temple, we had a teen choir, a middle choir, a middle school choir, and a youth choir. I think we had over 100 kids on the BIMA. I don't think there was anybody at our temple, in our religious school, that didn't sing in that concert. And and there's still some of the songs that we love, that we sing all the time. And to me, that was my favorite of all, because we just had a huge number of people involved.
0: Yeah, that was... Do you remember that? that? Mag- I do. That was magnificent. The other The other musical... Happening, And I know I'm leaving many out, but this, this always sticks in my mind is when we did a, a concert with Nick Page. Oh, um, yes. I, I, I think that that note for note was one of the most exciting musical experiences we've ever had here.
1: And Nick Page, for those of you who don't know, he is known in the community, the Boston community, as a man who does power singing. He goes to big companies, and he goes to choir festivals, and his whole idea is just getting people to connect through music. So we brought him in to do our, I think it was called, Sing Out for Freedom concert. Yeah. And that was before Passover. He's amazing, and I agree with you. That was absolutely profound and so beautiful. Yeah. Uh, Susan,
0: I wonder from your perspective, I mean, you have a deep knowledge and relation to Jewish music from the time of your youth. How would you characterize the world that you've professionally been involved in? How would you characterize some of the differences, the evolution, if you see it as evolution, of Jewish music and what's happening? And what should people expect to hear, do you think, that they haven't heard before? Or or is it pretty much the same?
1: When I came to the temple, there were a handful of well-known Jewish musicians. Of course, we had wonderful Julie Silver, whose family is part of Beth Avodah, Jeff Klepper. We had Debbie Friedman. They were the people that everybody knew, and they, were, they really guided the beginning of of Jewish music, Julie came a little later in that scene, but she was, you know, strongly influenced by those early pioneers. And there weren't a lot of people when we were trying to think of who to even to bring to Beth Avodah. There were there weren't so many people out there who had a lot to offer. And what's happened over the years is maybe it's through Jewish camp experience, or maybe just because. Indie folk rock has come back in style, and now maybe I'm you know, thinking about time, and you know the '90s was about big bands and rock and roll, and then every every era, every decade brought different music. I know now my own kids are listening to people to small groups like yeah, Little Habits, and you know some of the smaller bands. Tiny Little Habits, I think is the name of that group. And some of these, you know, little desk concerts, the NPR desk concerts with just people playing guitar. And so I think there are so many people out there now in the Jewish world that are really terrific players. They might be doing bluegrass. They may be doing Americana. They may be doing jazz. I think so you're seeing everything that's out in the secular Jewish, the secular music world has become popular in the Jewish music world. I expect in the future, we're going to be seeing a lot more. I think we're going to be seeing some more bluegrass Jewish music.
0: So are you feeling optimistic about the growth of Jewish music?
1: Absolutely. I know that I'm part of a a group called Havanashira, which is all the young folk who are coming every year to, learn music for camps and for their congregational work. And it is an enormous group. There are like 500 people in that group. And this weekend, there's a whole bunch of them are getting together at, at uh, one of the camps out in Wisconsin to learn more music and to be influenced by the new styles. I, th- I just think there's a lot of great Jewish music coming our way. And I don't know how it's going to play out in congregational life, if it's going to be how... how how congregational life is going to play out. So all of those things are are going to be uh, yet to be foreseen.
0: What do you sense is the trajectory over the next few years for what's going to be happening in sanctuaries all over America?
1: It's a challenge because at the beginning of the pandemic, everybody needed to be with each other, and now we've gone back to whatever is the new normal. And I'm not sure of what the role is of the synagogue. You can easily go on online or you can catch a little bit of it. Like, do you need to come anymore? Is there this need for community and that building up of like, is it, I don't know. Like, I don't know what the synagogue life is gonna look like in the next few years. I think we did something incredible and profound in the last few years. And I'm hoping that the feeling of what we brought of people in our congregation being connected, no matter what, that every single per- person, whether it was through our services or being or the phone calls that different people at the temple made, that everybody felt connected. And I think more importantly than the music and the liturgy and everything was being part of something where you know people care about you, that no matter what happens, that we really are there for each other. That's something that it's hard to convey that as a a message in the greater world. Join a temple because people care about you. (laughs) That's a hard thing. And I hope that message does get conveyed. I think we're just going to have to see how it plays out, especially for, you know, this next generation of young parents and and beyond, the, you know, kids, people who are our kids' age, who are just stepping up into that adulthood part of their life, like what role synagogue will play for them. So I can't, I don't have a a glass ball in front of me. I don't really know what it's going to look like. I hope that it, it, maybe it's going to have a new iteration, something that you and I can't even imagine.
0: So Susan, you're retiring at the end of the uh, spring.
1: How does that feel for you? I have a lot of mixed emotions as, as I am both excited to start a new chapter and have a lot of sadness because it means I'm ending something that has been so important in my life. I think I'm ready in one hand to move to the next spot, and on the other hand, you know, I've, I've students who are coming up to me and say, well, maybe you can just do my bat mitzvah or something like right, that. Right. And I've been saying things like, you know, if I'm, a, if I'm in town, I'll come to yours, but, you know, maybe I'll get to sing something. But I'm sure you're going to love whoever comes along. And, you know, change is hard. I mean, you and I have talked a lot. Change is really hard. It's hard for everybody. It's hard for me and it's hard for you. We always want to know what the next Chapter looks like
0: yeah yeah
1: Jim and I talking just recently about this whole idea it, it, it kind of a cliche or you know a, a motto that we got from a friend a very dear friend of ours who sadly passed away and he said he once said to Jim things lead to things and I like that whole idea because it's about action you know I I would always say things fall on my lap and what I am going to do next will fall on my lap. But this idea of things lead to things is more about whatever you've done, the people you've met, the connections you've made, the work you've done, that leads you to the next thing. And I truly believe that my next thing is around the corner. I'm not exactly sure which road I'm going to go. I have a lot of different different routes I can take. You're definitely going to be seeing me still playing my guitar, doing Jewish music, Maybe not full time, but, you know, from time to time, different places. I definitely am interested in more of that pastoral work. That's so much a part of the joy that I've gotten in this work over the past 10 years. And, you know, whether I'll pursue that professionally or I'll pursue that in a volunteer way. Again, I'm not quite sure how it's all going to unfold, but I'm totally confident that things will lead to things. (laughs)
0: Susan, we know you so well. Uh, between these uh, walls of Temple Beth Avodah. But um, you have a pretty busy life outside of the temple. So what do you do out there in the real world?
1: <laughs> well, I, I'm really looking forward to having that opportunity in the future to discover more of it because I don't really have enough time in the real world. But I, <laughs> I would say that in in my other life, I'm really a very simple person. I live my life, I think, through my senses. I love to bake. I love to read. I love to listen to music. Like you, I, I love to get my hands dirty in the garden, and I I do spend quite a lot of time with my family. Um, you know, everybody kind of relies on me, whether it be the dog or my kids, I'm indefinitely the person in the family that makes sure everything happens. Um, But I also really like my alone time. That's uh, kind of the other side of me, because Temple is a very public part of who I am. And my other side is maybe a little bit more quiet. I'm I'm not somebody who travels in a big circle of friends, but I love getting together with friends one-on-one and Connecting deeply, so yeah, I think I'm kind of this simple person for whom my family, my relationships, nature, the lake, the mountains, hiking, walking, gardening you know that's that's kind of where I am when I'm not at Bathavoja.
0: I am so glad about that, Susan. it's been such a a great opportunity to sit and schmooze for TBA now with you. And of course, it goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway, how very much I love you and appreciate you and all that you've done over the course of your career here at the temple and that you've given so much of yourself and have been a kind and patient partner. And for that, I owe you an enormous uh, and immeasurable debt of gratitude. And we, all of us at the temple, look forward to following you on your road to where you go next. And you'll have to decide where in the sanctuary you want your seat to be, and we'll make sure that it's yours forever.
1: I love that. And, uh, you know, of course, I appreciate everybody at Temple Beth Avodah, and particularly you, for allowing me to have this incredible unfolding Opportunity that has just changed me forever.
0: You are a very, very special, beloved human being. Thank you, Susan.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Find all of our episodes on bethavodah.org or on podcast sites everywhere. Special thanks to our brilliant producer, Amy Tonkonogy, and our intrepid engineer, Mike Kligerman.